Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Hello, everyone. Welcome to J3 Podcast. I'm your host, John Jewett, with me, Luke Miller. And today, we touch the forbidden fruit of DMP. <laughs> or... The chemical. <laughs> so which one of us is Adam and which one's Eve? <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, yeah. man. I've seen it's uh, been in so many conversations now. I'm getting more questions on DNP usage mm. and wanted to dive into it. And you, you, you brought it up to me and I... I'm, I was, I'm open-minded to the idea, so I, I dug in deeper and kind of came up with some final thoughts around it. But Conclusions. Um, I think, you know, within what we do for enhanced bodybuilding physique competition, we don't have, a, we don't have rules to really abide by as far as the, the chemical warfare side. Um, right. You have people using whatever. You, know, you have trimbalone on the table, which which people like make that out to be the the ultimate anabolic steroid, but also with greatest risk. Like you have this on the table. However, we have maybe a fat loss agent like DP, and it's like absolutely not. You're completely shunned. It's like that is the one taboo thing, but all these other aspects aren't. Same thing, kind of bucket list goes into like side enhancement oil, right? Like you use side enhancement oil, like oh get out of here. <laughs> You're kicked <laughs> out of the, the garden of Eden or whatever. You know, so, uh, that's in the bucket with DP. It's like, well, that's not really fair when we don't necessarily have in, in our rule set, like you can't use this. So you can't use this, but, um, yeah, there, there's still like, uh, certain connotation that's surrounded around DNP usage. So I thought we'd dive into it today. Yeah. And I think it's important to note, like the whole reason like this whole conversation originally got started was could we prove our thought process in either saying that it was on the table or that it wasn't right. And I think that's where like that open-mindedness comes in is when it's brought up in circles and people that you're around and gets discussed, it's like, there needs to be a logical rationale to it. And I think we've kind of come to that conclusion fairly well at this point, because this, this is a topic we started talking about months ago, probably five, six months ago originally. Yeah, it's it's one of those where you can't immediately jump to say no. I, I think that's what I, when I've asked some other coaches, like, hey, do you ever use this? Like, hell no. <laughs> really? And they're like, what, what do you know about it? It's like, it'll kill you. They're like, what else do you know? And it, it's uh, it's a little bit of short-lived conversation. Like, it's it's just more of like, that has been carried on that extreme of it without diving into like, well, what, is it, what do we really know about it? And um, to really be able to explain it, like how does it work? And to, uh, to understand it to where you can hold a conversation with someone that wants to use it and be able to educate that person, whether that's on the table or not, uh, versus just saying, hell no, we never use that. And then you have some other person that's ends up using it through another coach. And they just don't understand it. Right. Um, right. So I think that's why, I am always wanting to learn if I don't, if I, I'm not going to jump to say, hell no, uh, yeah. until I know, I know enough about it to form my own opinion, not just what someone's been, been fed me to do. 
So, well, let's dive into how this chemical uncoupler works. Yeah. Yeah. So DNP, uh, 2,4-dinitrophenol. Yep. That's actually what it stands for. It's a, it's a synthetic organic compound. It was actually used in the 1930s um, in ammunition plants in France. Now, what does an ammunition plant look like? I have no idea. I read about this in this research study. So, and that's about all they said about it. I, I've heard DMP has been used to make like TNT, and that's that's also been the fear mongering around it, right? Um, yeah. They make TNT with it. You put it in your body. I I have I was having a conversation with someone else, and when I worked at GNC, we didn't want to sell casein protein because they're like the margin wasn't as good on it, muscle milk wasn't you know what we were trying to sell, and so there was like propaganda brought around like casein protein is made to make glue and you're consuming glue. <laughs> it's like the, the same like fear mongering idea. Like, okay, we, we can form this stuff into like make things that are dangerous to humans like TNT. That doesn't mean it's necessarily dangerous in the way that we would take it. But anyway, in, in, in these, uh, these ammunition plants as an inhalant or even getting in contact with the skin, weight loss was being noticed. Right. And that's kind of how it came to be and being deployed as, uh, for one, I think it was just over the counter available, but then it was eventually prescribed in this like thirties period for weight loss. Uh, but being pulled still within the thirties, I think it was 1938 when it was yeah, actually pulled. 1938 when it was banned. And uh, for, for So that's uh, kind of where it came. It's, it's origin. How it actually works, like we said, it's a it's an uncoupler. Um, yeah. Basically, without looking at a diagram, the, the the simple explanation is like the whole process of eating food is to produce ATP, our, right. our our main energy substrate in the body. In that process, there's exchange of proteins that goes on, and the more coupled this process is between hydrogen ion exchange, uh, you produce more ATP. If you lose these protons through uncoupling, you won't make as much ATP from the food you're consuming. And this is what, what DMP does. So basically it uncouples that process. So the food you eat, you're now not making as much energy from. And what does that mean for you is you end up having a higher metabolic rate because that process makes a lot of heat. If you'll notice you get really warm on DMP. So um, for every 100 milligrams of DMP consumed, there's like a 10% increase in resting metabolic rate. And so this, all this thermogenesis just burns more calories, essentially. Um, doesn't work like a stimulant, so it doesn't raise heart rate or cause increases in blood pressure, unless you see it at like really high, like overdosing levels. Um, with that being said, like within the mitochondria and you're using oxidative phosphorylation fatty acids, where could you get more energy from? And it's through glycolysis, through the breakdown of glycogen. So part of this process is you end up using a lot of muscle glycogen. And, and that's a reported thing that we see, like guys report being really flat. Um, and so you can kind of think of this DMP as how you feel if you're like, I think of it as like if you're like four weeks out from a show, you know, you're like really flat, your fatigue's gonna be high because think about it, the food you're eating isn't making as much cellular energy as you need. So yeah. you're gonna have really high fatigue, not wanna move around a lot. It's gonna be uncomfortable 
you're gonna be hot and sweaty. Usually you're cold and prepped down, but also, um, yeah, flat. So that's, that's like the, I'd say the simple rundown of yeah. the mechanism of action and where this stuff even started. And I think it was around the 2000s where there was like this reemergence in DMP. Where that came about, I don't know. But um, one of the studies I was looking at was uh, like usage across like the timeline since the 30s and the 30s. It's like this spike, then back into the 2000s, you see this another spike, probably some some researcher bodybuilder was like, oh yeah, look what I found. <laughs> right. These studies are like from the 30s. It's it's uh pretty wild that yeah, that wasn't that wasn't even research even available back then. So yeah. Think, and I think I think that the, the the point of the timeline is an important one to make because you made one a, a pretty good point yesterday about you know we wouldn't choose to go back to the 1930s for for medical care. Right. And like the things that we would choose to kind of take from a medical perspective is probably not very well supported from the 1930s for the majority of the things that we're doing. Right. So um, it's it's almost like, yes, it, it was used in a medical history standpoint and it was used within the medical community. That doesn't mean that it gives us the right to, to deploy this within our contest prep athletes. Yeah, so there there is that aspect around. I guess well, I guess I mean we get to what are the issues. Yeah, we probably should hit that first. Yeah, around DMP. Um, and well, I guess the the main issue here is is uh, toxicity and death. Um, yeah, and when you look at the toxicity around DMP, uh, it basically the, the people that pass from DMP um, they induce a state of hyperthermia. So their body temperature rises excessively. And usually there's a, a cardiovascular event, cardiovascular failure that occurs around that. Um, how quickly that can happen for someone that takes too much DMP. Uh, what I was reading, it ranged from like seven to 14 hours. So you're looking at a very short window of time. If you were consuming a, a DMP level that reached a toxicity amount um, yeah. and to treat it, it basically was IV fluids, get this guy in ice and try to cool them down. And there's been some people where it, there was success in treatment. But again, that window is so small. By the time you realize there's an issue, it might, it might already be too late. Um, and usually there's like yellowing of the skin that occurs around toxicity too. So something to look, look out for. Um, the lowest published lethal dose of DMP. And before I say this, I'll say some people have cited that there is an LD50 for like a lethal dose in humans established for DMP. And I tried to search for exactly what that amount was. And I, I couldn't find it. What I did found was just like the deaths that surrounded DMP and what those dosages kind of ranged around. And the, there's, there's several deaths around DMP and at, at not very high dosages. Um, the lowest one that I found was 4.3 milligram per kilogram, which if, you know, let's call it you know, 500 milligrams of DMP, uh, if you were um, 200, 220 pound uh, individual, that'd be actually 430 milligram. But most most of the deaths range from 2,000 to 5,000 milligrams, which, which is a lot of DMP. Yeah. We're usually seeing dosages of, I've seen guys doing 300, 400 mgs per day. Yeah. Um, what I've seen more recently is less than 100 milligram per day. Point being here, there is 
a, a very close, uh, the efficacious dosing of DMP is very, very close to the lethal dosing of DMP, right? Um, that, that's part of the problem that I would see around it. And the, the risk that death can occur so quickly from taking it, I don't think there's many other things in bodybuilding use that present that level of risk. Yeah. And I think one of the things to consider here too, is we probably should talk about the half-life and the clearance, right? Because it's going to accumulate over time because most people it's going to be around 36 hour half-life, if I remember correctly. Man, I tried to find that in a study because I, I saw that like in Reddit forums and stuff and people throwing that number around. I, I just couldn't find it in research. Um, yeah, so I pulled a paper from Liverpool John Moore's that had that in it. That was the only one I found. Oh, okay, okay. So you actually, you actually found yeah. It. So there was a paper. Mm -hmm. It was it was a it was a study in the uh, netonographic study of user experiences in the quest for leanness. Um, it was what's the date on it? Now, okay, I read that one. Now I thought that was like a report from a user. Two thousand sixteen. Yeah, it was a report from a user. So I guess I was using that as the evidence okay. for it. Because I saw that. I, I did read that. And then I read other people saying it. And then you see, then I started seeing like 24 hours from a few people. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, 36 hours. Where did that come from? And I, I did read one paper that was looking to treat DNP overdose and, and how to clear it out of the system. And through that process, they were looking at some like pharmacokinetics. But it was more so clearance times with using this other drug to clear it, but not necessarily right. just the, the pharmacokinetics of actual DNP. Um, um, from from just re reports, it seems like there's an accumulation from what's been said. I just haven't been able to find the yeah, actual like the, the validation of what it what it actually is. So either way, either way, either way. Um, Assuming that that is kind of where it's at, whether it's a variable marker that is going to accumulate over time with the dosing, right? And so um, it is something to kind of be careful with, which kind of goes with the duration of use that we, we see, like those longer durations of use running the higher risk of accumulating more over time. Um, and it's potentially kind of where we really start to approach those really close to that LD50 mark, right? And that's kind of where a lot of the issues can start to arise. Yeah, that's uh, the problematic issue around it. And then what, what I would bring up as well, with, with that in mind, uh, is, is that the next thing that comes to mind is like, okay, these are the dosages. If you were to be deploying it cl too close to that mark, oh man, that's extremely high risk. Um, if you were to be using it, say what I, what I have seen lately and how it is less than 100 milligram per day, and it's usually for what we've both seen, Luke, is early on in prep when you could accept a level of fatigue right. and you want to push the fat loss hard at the gate or like kind of mid prep where you need someone to, to catch up. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think the problem with the early prep deployment is that you have so many tools available in order to get someone moving or you should theoretically if you're playing the prep well with activity and food and a lot of other compounds from a fat loss perspective that we could be deploying here that are much, <clears throat> much safer in use. 
that I, I don't see the early deployment being a, a viable one. And we, we may want to kind of circle back because we, we didn't really dive into some of the issues that we see as far as like side effects and incidents of liver failure and skin rash and some of that kind of stuff. Um, because with usage, like, you know, it, it's pretty rapid, some of the side effects that you'll see with it. Yeah, I mean, those those were some of the main ones you just had. Like, usually, I mean, the, the the effects, you just have, like, the increased warmth and sweating. But you're right, like, in, in dosages creeping up, there has been, like, reports of, like, cataracts forming, like you said. Yeah. Like liver failure, skin rashes, yellow discoloration. Um, some, some people will notice a lot of edema. Yeah, I was about to say the edema is one, too. Present. And... I was trying to find their actual mechanisms around that. It's hard to, it's hard to pull out. There might be like a potassium electrolyte shifts, which maybe that could cause some aldosterone changes. But uh, again, I, I couldn't find the exact thing around it. But regardless, like when people are using it, usually there's not a lot of body weight change when you, when you are. And then once you discontinue, there's like this water flushing that happens um, over the next week. And, and why you could make theory around like the accumulation period is also because when you're stop usage, there's usually this water that drops off over the whole entire course of the week versus like one day. Yeah. So maybe it's clearing out of the system and you're seeing that, that water come about and you're also removing the fatigue that was occurring around its usage, usage too. Yeah. Which uh, it's kind of a mind fuck as well because you have some weeks where you're trying to move someone ahead on prep, I guess, and you're also blurring the assessment of that, um, how, how, how effective it really is. is working. Yeah, and, and also kind of making sure that you're still on track, right? Because I think once we kind of get into the argument of whether it's on the table or not, one of the big things to cite is almost if the need is there, is the way that you prepared for the show warrant you actually doing the show? Because we had this conversation about how long you've been coaching and how long I've been coaching and how many preps have been successfully ran and the level of competitors and the incidence of use, right? Being extremely low, where if you do a good job planning preps, the need should not be there. Yeah, I, I've, I've never used it personally or on a client. Um, and don't get me wrong, I've had plenty of instances where it was on me. I didn't plan out the, the coaching timeline right. Right. And, and someone ran out of time. Um, you know, I think as you gain more experience, you hone that skill as well. But I, I think also that comes into your responsibility on a coach of, for one, keeping someone on track, but being able to have the conversation with someone that, hey, do we have the chance to push this show back? And if you are like earlier starting out as a coach, you're probably not working with higher level clients just yet uh, to where that's even on the table for someone because they have so many other tools to even learn from uh, before just throwing in another compound to utilize. Right. And, and I think even off the, the front end assessment for someone, if you knew like, man, 20 weeks is going to cut it from this one, then don't even start the prep to begin with. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that, like, why, why, why would you do that? And uh, even, even mid prep, if someone's not getting ahead, it's hard to make a justification for like, we need to de deploy this for, for one week to really, really move them out. For one, there are so many other tools on the table, but it, 
I think you have to put in context. It's like, what are you, what are you going for here? Um, keep your e-perspective because I know for a lot of us that are in the depths of prep that you would do anything for the win, for the program, for this. And uh, part of being a coach is also the result, of course, but also you're responsible for these people's lives and to make choices when they might not be in the best mindset to make those choices. So if I'm going to put on the table something that brings the risk of death for a physique competition, that's just stating like that seems insane to me when I would actually say it out loud. Uh, like if you want to put it into that perspective, but you can state it and maybe try to justify it in, in another way. Right. But by saying, well, the issue around DP is people use too much and that's when deaths occur. And at a reasonable dosage, which what's a reasonable dosage for, uh, you know, an right. unregulated drug. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, let's say, okay, so within a reasonable dosage, yeah, you could uh, yeah, reduce the risk, right? Exactly. And I, I guess that then leads me to the argument of like, well, how do you know your dosage will be accurately implemented, right? So you have someone that potentially could, for where are they getting it from? So usually they're coming with this powder supplier. Is the powder you're accessing tested and have some type of like, you know, it, it is that milligram amount? Then you have someone else that's capsulating it. And I've seen this capsule process, um, mixing in fillers and like, you know, what if some capsules are getting a little bit more than other capsules? Then you have your actual client pulling apart these capsules and dividing out the dosages to what you want it to be. And there, there's a lot of steps in that process for error and people make error. And when the margin of error is going to be really small for, for the dosage where the efficacious dose is close to lethal dose, man, that, that, that is high risk to me, high risk for a death when, for what we're doing here. And that's where I go with that conversation about, oh, we just need to make sure we're using lower dosages of DMP and that's justified. Right. Yeah, I think the, the administration piece to it um, really would be concerning for me. Yeah, is because it is like a lot of steps in the process, right? Like in as far as like where things could start to go wrong. And when we look, we, we understand the culture that's surrounding around bodybuilding and like the variable dosing across different uh, across different anabolics. Right. That's something that we have to deal with on kind of a regular basis why we suggest getting stuff tested when you can and all these kinds of things. But the differential is the risk factor in variable dosing between the different compounds where DMP is not one where that variable dosing is worth that risk. Another thing too is where some of this is being used is like these, like, well, I mean, every approach that we use in bodybuilding is polypharmacy, right? Uh, We're stacking all kinds of compounds together. Uh, you don't know the effects of also what else you're taking on top of it. Like there was a death not too long ago reported in a bodybuilder using clenbuterol and DMP together. Um, it was, it looked like it was the DMP that was like the root issue here. However, um, when you're using in 12, 15 different drugs, which people do, 
um, how do all those drugs interact and lead to a greater high-risk outcome versus just, hey, we're just talking DMP here. Because uh, there are other, is other protein uncouplers we use vitamin. Uh, trimbolone has an aspect around it. Injectable L-carnitine has an aspect around it. Um, so they're still working those some of those other those mechanisms that DMP does. But a polypharmacy model, even when everything's at low dosages, can add up to be a high risk as something where you're using a few less things, but at higher dosages. We, we don't have any any data to suggest otherwise for it. We, we can make some good rationales around different sides of it. Um, however, yeah, that, that would be another, another point. Like just people throwing around safer use and we just use multiple pathways and low doses of each one. And that's not, that's not the idea behind it. it. It's not to use every compound you have at disposal at low dosages. It's based around using what you said, Luke, to obtain our goals, we use the lowest dose possible to achieve that and then add in on needs basis. So just because we have 12 different compounds at our, our disposal, it's still assessed per the needs for the result brought. You don't need to use all of them because that brings a lot more risk. So use them as needed. Yeah, which is why like I've had a couple conversations with people that have said like, heard conversations of ours on the podcast and like, Oh, you guys use X, Y, Z. And it's like, okay, sure. We've had discussions around this. It's probably a lot of it's like mainstays within compound designs for different people, but whether that user is low risk or medium risk or high risk, the goal should be even within the risk of the user to be on the lowest end that we can lowest end of that, that we came to produce the level of result we have to. So this would even be within the high risk user that is bodybuilding as a career and needs to make money, like competing. Like it doesn't mean that we have to take these unnecessary risks if we can do it without it. Right. And then this is kind of where our model starts to go from like, no matter where the category of the client falls within those three categories, air quote, if you want to call them that, because they're kind of spectrums within them. Um, we still should be following that client in the results that can be obtained without necessarily full on going to the fullest extent of that category. And so for the high risk client, like, and, and I'm sure, I'm sure he would be fine with me discussing this, like, like Cuba, like Cuba is competing at the professional level and, and all of these kinds of things and he's doing the Arnold classic UK. This has never been on the table for him. And this is what he does for a living. And it's like, we're producing the result without something like this in play. Yeah, it's, and I guess you could say like define who the high risk user is. And uh, some people just, I think they appoint themselves that time. Or like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I am the high risk user, I'm down. I'm down to do what it takes, <laughs> coach. And that's, and people tell me that. And I think the highest risk users are the ones that are like are still like at the at the amateur level, just banging on that pro card door for the last like ten years, and they you see the most drug use there. So, for yeah. for the ones that would be, you would consider even having more risk on the table. Where hey, this is your career, you don't even see those things done because they are such freaks. And that was my like we were talking yesterday about this. Yeah, um, like if you saw the response of these people, and I mean. 
hell, I've done the Olympia. Like I, I'm not, I don't see myself as the elite elite as far as genetics go. But the, even the response of like fat loss, muscle building across all these guys, it's phenomenal. Like that, that doesn't even need to be, a, be an option um, right. because they are such freaks. And what I would say now is, is the, the landscape around making money in bodybuilding is completely changed. So you say like, hey, my career depends on me getting on stage at this show. Cool. Absolutely. Your placing probably doesn't depend on how much money you're going to make this year. Now, except for the guys like getting first at, at shows. But even then, like there's still a level of prize money, but most of these guys are making the money from you know, right. contracts and supplement sponsors and just their persona of guys that don't even compete. They're making a ton of money. So it, it still doesn't, I need DMP to make sure my career is successful for this one week. I, I, I can't justify it. And where, where I see it more so used is in small females, honestly. That's where I see it, like bikini. I think there's, there's a few coaches that are just, that is almost their go-to protocol because the problem around small females is they have to go very low food and very high cardio. And to create that deficit, it's small and it just takes a long time to get them stage ready. And that's the error of the coach. It takes a long time to get them stage ready, give them the time that it needs. Right. Uh, don't just throw a drug place. And that gets even more problematic because when you have a small individual on the same dosage, you're probably giving to a large individual. And, it, and again, like the people I see using it, a lot of times they're amateurs. Like they have so many tools they need to learn to deploy to get stage lean. Like you don't want to mask that process with a drug. You, you, need, to, you need to make them learn. And yeah, that maybe that takes a hit to your coaching as far as like acute short-term results, but long-term you're going to build up your coaching business around athletes that know what they're doing. Um, mm. So would you agree on that? Like that you see it more so like in small females or. Yeah. So uh, probably the female category first and then second being kind of that gray area of amateurs chasing pro cards and or pros who are trying to get to the next tier of competition um, would be kind of where that that's I've seen that the most and potentially discussed the most um, just in the circles that I've been in around that have been brought up um, kind of in those two areas. I agree. And I feel like that is your immediate aha. The best in the world aren't doing it. If you are required to be doing this, change, change your path or find a different way to do it because you're doing it wrong. Right. Um, if, if the best in the world aren't needing to do these things and you're having to, you're either implementing your prep wrong, your coach is implementing your prep wrong, or you just simply will not have what it takes to move to that upper echelon, which for what this is, the risk of the body, yeah, I would, re, I would reconsider this, this whole, the whole conversation that you're doing. Yeah, I think... Uh... I think the goal should be to plan far enough ahead where it's never even a conversation. And just in my experience, like the best plan preps are the ones that require the least drugs and the ones that require, honestly, the least push in order to get there. It doesn't mean it's not going to suck. It's going to absolutely suck, but it's just the planning part, right? Like I, I get a lot of questions around Mitch's prep from 21. Cause he was like just saran wrapped on stage. 
was like, yeah, we stepped off of Tampa Pro 2020 and planned every phase from Tampa Pro 2020 to Nationals 21. It's like we were ready. We were ready a year and a half before. We knew what was going to happen. So um, doing that kind of stuff, I think, is where you have the capacity to pull your best package out because I'm going to make the argument too, that DMP is going to leave some of your best package on the table because of the severity of the change and kind of how, how much it is pulling you down. Yeah. Even the females, like the pros that I coach, the best conditioning achieved, it's usually always on pretty minimal with really, really perfectly set up timelines, more time. And they're always ready ahead and been able to like eat into the show. Yep. And, uh, this is, this is across divisions like big WPD or figure. Bikini. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, typically the case. And e- even with pros, like mess up the timeline, but I still don't go there with it, with it because it just, uh, it's just not working still. Like yeah. Everything we, we just discussed. So yeah, well, it's, it's been an interesting couple months of conversation, just pulling pulling information on it and going back and forth. But I think where we're at is kind of where I think most logically makes sense. Yeah, you know, so within, within this, what we do, there is absolute adherent risk that we do accept. Other things that are pretty risky you know, within sports, like people can make a case for insulin. Right, like the, the lethal amount of insulin is pretty damn high relative to what you're talking. There's been people that injected like three pins of Lantus and survived. And we were talking, we take ten IU's a day. <laughs> yeah, not a thousand. Like that's that's a very vast difference. Diuretics is probably right up there with with risk for, for people to die. And for our approaches, we basically rarely, rarely, rarely ever require that to be put. Yeah. So, but nonetheless, absolutely what we do, we accept some risk, but we should still be trying to lessen that risk. It's not just because, hey, we take a risk approach, we just we just unbuckle our seatbelts while we're driving. Like there's uh, still rationale to be had for trying to do this with less than risk for us long-term and health-wise. And I think uh, these thoughts at the moment DMP doesn't fit within the usage for what we want to educate people on or use within our client base. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, what do you think about DMP? <laughs> Comments below. Comments below. Uh, Subscribe, turn that notification button on. <laughs> <laughs> for anyone, anyone else listening, we uh, appreciate y'all tuning in. Yes. Listen to us speak on the forbidden chemical, DMP. Until next time, guys. Talk to you later.